Um, hi, everyone. Take a seat. Um, can you imagine if you just all stood up throughout my whole talk? That would be awkward. Um, my name's Alice, if you have never met me before, and I work here at Bread, and I came over to America, this beautiful nation, um, to work for Bread, and I love it. And if you've been here for the past few weeks, you'll know that we are in a series in Ephesians, and today we make a move into chapter number four. The passage is going to come up on the screen behind me, because uh, we're going to kind of take a whistle-stop tour throughout the whole thing, um, like a bird's-eye view kind of perspective. And this chapter is about Christian maturity. And Paul illustrates three specific hallmarks of actually what it means to be mature. One, we are unified. Two, we identify and use our particular gifts to serve one another. And three, we display the sort of character that is actually appropriate to our new identity as new creations. So unity is both an established theological reality. So it's what it means to be a Christian. We are all united by um, that what Jesus has done for us. That he's made us one with him and with the Godhead. And also, unity is a present ongoing work. So it's already a theological reality in Jesus, but it's a present ongoing work. We are called to keep and keep on keeping the unity we already have. Because unity is the kind of ultimate hallmark of Christian maturity. And the two other hallmarks, as I mentioned, are gifts and displaying godly character. But I'm going to come back to unity right at the end because it makes most sense. And just before I continue, I want you all to be aware that I am totally aware of the irony that is me speaking about maturity. Um, because I am probably younger than lots of you, and I certainly am a younger Christian than pretty much most of you. So I just want you to be aware of that. However, I have benefited greatly from becoming a Christian in a church that recognized my gifting as soon as I became a Christian. And I know that for many people who have grown up in church, that's not necessarily the case. The thing that people don't necessarily associate with growing up in the church is, I know exactly what my gifts are, and they were used perfectly. So I actually hope that in sharing a little bit of my current experience, that it might be a little bit helpful. Okay. When it comes to the second hallmark of maturity, godly character, I'm just going to admit from the outset this is something still that I'm working on. But it's progress, right? We're all in that kind of stage of progress. And Paul says in verse 15 that the more we are honest and speak the truth in love to one another, the more we will become the mature body we are intended to be. So let none of us think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And so I want to be open and honest about where I struggle because knowing that the spirit in that moment, in that moment of uh, vulnerability, can actually come in and transform me as he has and continues to do. So chapter four is the beginning of kind of like a big shift in the book of Ephesians. 
In chapters 1 to 3, Paul has kind of done theory and theology. He has written to the church and been like, remember, like, remember what God has already done. Let me just kind of go through point to point. This is everything that God has already done. And it is here in chapter 4 that Paul says, because of all that stuff I've just been discussing that I've reminded you of, be who you now are. Just be who you are. Verse 1, so then live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What life looks like is one of unity, which he expresses in verse 3 to 6, which, as I said, I'll come back to, and in a life in which we know our gifts. We are all like different parts of the body. And when each part is doing its work, this is when the whole body grows and builds itself up in love. We, the whole Christian community, become mature together. So what are your gifts? How are you using them? Uh, Paul identifies five here. Verse 11, it says this. So Christ gave himself, uh, Christ gave himself, so Christ himself gave, cool, did that three times. Um, Great. Uh, The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In the apostolic age, the apostles were... um, people who actually met historical Jesus. So we're talking the 12 disciples and Paul. Because Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then it's later, his apostolic authority is later then confirmed by uh, jo- uh, Peter and James in Jerusalem. So the 12 and Paul, apostles, capital A. But it's important to note here that apostles, capital A, is actually not what Paul is talking about here in verse 11. The word apostle means sent out person, or more kind of accurately, sent with purpose. So think Barnabas, think Silas, think Timothy, and also um, Junia. She's also described in, as an apostle by Paul in Romans. And I'm kind of adding her in there because apostolic gifting, just want to be clear, is not just for the boys. Um, but none of these people met Jesus but they are clearly apostolic in nature, church planters, missionaries, um, kind of entrepreneurial. And I mean by nature of the very church that you're sitting in, by nature of the people that we follow, I follow, we follow two people who are apostolic in nature. Ed and Hannah have left the country that they were born in, they were raised in. They have followed the voice of God, and they have planted a church in America. So they they are apostles, small a. So an apostle is actually something anyone can be, small a, not big a, but, ev- um, but not everyone is because you might, ha- you might instead be a prophet or an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher. And by listing these gifts here, Paul is saying we, the church, need apostles to take new ground. We need prophetic people to foretell what God is doing. We need evangelists to preach the gospel with power and with relevance. We need pastors to care for and to disciple us. And we need teachers to help us decipher the word of God, to navigate the relationship between culture and truth. 
So Paul is basically, in this kind of small list, introducing us to diversity in gifting. And some churches are adamant that each one of us will fit very nicely into one of these five gifts. But it's actually probably not that helpful to be too determined about such a thing, especially given that in elsewhere in the Bible, Romans 12 and also 1 Corinthians 12, Paul has other lists of gifts, and it kind of some of them cross over, some of them seem to be added on, um, but there's a whole range of gifts that he seems to list throughout these three lists. So instead, the overriding point here is we are all uniquely gifted by Jesus for the service of other people. Everyone is important. There is no hierarchy. There is no need to compete. There are lots of different ways in which people are gifted by God. Um, I never thought I'd be working for a church, if I'm completely honest with you. Uh, my first experience of the Spirit was kind of one, how best to describe it would be, I felt a lot of weight and heaviness all over my body, basically to the point of me, like, kneeling on the ground. Um, it was very powerful, and I became a Christian kind of wham-bam situation. Um, but I honestly felt like Christianity is kind of the church was kind of from Mars. Um, I'd never grown up around this. My parents aren't Christians. So encountering Jesus and becoming a Christian was really honestly not on my agenda. And I had always been um, a boundary pusher. So I was one of those little kids who would sweetly smile at the teacher while they told me not to do something and continue to do it. Um, I had grazed knees and wild hair and a grubby face at all times, and most of my friends were boys, and tree climbing was my vibe. Um, I even called my, I'm kind of embarrassed by this, but I even called my friendship group when I was a teenager the Lost Boys because I was obsessed with Peter Pan and I really wanted to be like Peter. Um, and we were all girls, so who knew? And when I was 18, I moved to London and started college. And one of my biggest fears, and I think because of my experiences in childhood, but also because just of my personality, one of my biggest fears has always been that I'll lose my freedom in some way. And when I became a Christian, my honest expectation was that being part of church would do just that, that my freedom would be taken from me. So for that reason, I feel extremely lucky that I became a Christian in a church like this one because my personality and my gifting was recognized very early on, my desperate desire for freedom, my rejection of the rules, and honestly, my knee-jerk disregard for any type of authority whatsoever, um, none of that was seen as threatening or corrupt. People didn't tell me to sort my life out, or to stop going to parties, or to stop hanging out with non-Christians, or to stop, stop, stop this. They didn't chase me down, they didn't text or call me incessantly when I didn't show up to church. And sometimes I wouldn't show up for three months at a time because I was petrified about what this could all mean. But I always came back because I couldn't stay away. And I actually normally came back dragging loads of my friends with me. Because amongst all of the confusion about what being a Christian actually meant, I was certain of one thing, I was gifted to tell people about Jesus.
and I was actually totally unafraid of territory. Most Christians are, I don't know, grimace at them. I had no formal training. I couldn't, and honestly, very rarely still can recite a Bible verse at the right time. And I absolutely couldn't give a succinct theological answer to the problem of suffering, which is always the thing people bring up. Numero uno, what about suffering? And I couldn't do any of that. All I knew to the depths of my being was that God absolutely adored all of my friends. His love was without measure for them, and I wanted them all to encounter Jesus so desperately. I was an evangelist, and when I did make it to church, I would have experience after experience of the Spirit that reminded me again that this unrelenting drive in me, this unrelenting drive to have freedom, was actually most satisfied when I led people to Jesus, because it wasn't really about me. I could lead people elsewhere if I wanted, and trust me, I did. And um, yeah, I've always been a natural born kind of like, follow me. Um, But I felt a very clear sense of purpose and of peace when I led them to Jesus. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, right? And that's what I wanted. So service of other people and of Jesus is not a burden, which is not to say that it's not hard work. It absolutely is sometimes. But it's what each of us are made for. So it's when we use our particular gifts for this purpose that we're actually being most like who we already are. And we often feel the most alive. So what makes you feel alive? I just want you to think about that for a moment. What makes you feel alive? We are unable to grow maturity and live a life worthy of our calling if we are trying to fit inside a box that doesn't fit us. So that's what Paul is asking us here. What's your actual mold? What's your mold? Not what someone's forced upon you and absolutely not what the church has forced upon you either. What is your mold? Because God knows exactly what you're like. He's not asking you to stop being that. And he knows your gifting and your individuality because he made you. So using your gifting, number one. Two, displaying godly character. And this is the other side of the coin for what it means to be mature. And it's the second half of this chapter for me where it gets particularly challenging because this next section speaks right to the kind of jugular of my current thoughts and feelings and honestly failures in my faith. So let's just go for it. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to... put on our new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, do something useful with their own hands, and they may have some 
something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, all rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. So many of us will be used to hearing one side or the other. Either it's all about gifting or it's all about character, but it's kind of both and. Your gifts will be used more powerfully for the kingdom with a heart and a character more willing to become like Jesus. And you'll be more free to be who you actually are, exercising the gifts in service of Jesus and his church. So this second half of chapter four is like driven by the heart of Paul's ethics. As we grow into maturity, we must learn to have control over our emotions. So as he says, hate, anger, greed, those are the ones he lists. Put on your new self because that's who you now are. You are now in Jesus. He got rid of your old self when you became a Christian. You are now a completely new creation. So just stop, stop being the old. And this is important for Paul because there is work to be done. The goal is not for us to not sin. It's to be righteous. And what I'm experiencing now is that in becoming more mature in my faith, in the midst of living out what I love to do, of using my gifts, of coming to terms with the reality that I think I'll probably now be working in ministry for the rest of my life, which is mostly ridiculous for my family because they're like, crap, we've got a crazy Christian one. Um, They don't really get it. But what I'm finding difficult is all of these other emotions that I still feel. What I find difficult is actually putting on my new self and having control over anger and bitterness and rage. And over the last couple of years, I've made, I'm going to say a significant dent, a bit of progress when it comes to emotions. For a large proportion of my life, I have been very good at numbing everything. So if you want to talk to me about numbing emotions, I can help you. Um, To me, emotion, and especially emotional vulnerability, I mean, the only way I could describe it, if I'm being honest, is it makes me feel totally weak. And as I've come into contact with more healing and in turn, more emotion, um, I've come into contact with a lot of anger in particular. And just when I think I'm done, I'm like, sick, take that one off. Haven't been angry for a month. Um, Anger comes out from somewhere else. And in some sense, it's righteous anger. I'm processing stuff. It makes sense that I'm angry about some of the experiences I had as a child, but at its ugliest, it can cause some of my closest friends to be caught in the crossfire. I can disregard people I love. I can hurl comments of abuse at people I disagree with. I can fall to my knees in tears because it makes me feel so alone. Anger makes me feel disappointment and shame almost instantaneously. Because actually, what I'm feeling is pain. The pain of who I used to be. It's like a reminder. So it's from verse 30 that I find particularly challenging. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander. I've brawled a lot. I haven't. Brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Is it just me, or do any of you also find a perfectly good reason to basically do everything that you've ever done? Even if it's destructive? I've always got an answer. And it's particularly when I feel in pain, because I seem to go right back to putting on who I used to be. Put on those old glad rags, my old pre-Jesus self. It makes it feel a bit easier. And Paul is saying, what happens when we do that over and over again? It leads to the hardening of our hearts, verse 18. And what happens when your heart is callous? You become ignorant. And spiritual ignorance is kind of like when you just forget who God is. You lack the certainty and the knowledge that he is your father in heaven and that he loves you. You forget your experiences of his love and his grace. Because when you are in like self-destruct mode, this causes you to lose sensitivity. And without sensitivity, you lose genuine pleasure and freedom. And pleasure and freedom come from, as I said, gifting, unity, calling. And without sensitivity, what are you left with? Sensual pleasure is what Paul calls it, verse 19. And to be clear, that's not just in reference to sex. He isn't boxing like sensual pleasure into only sexual pleasure here. He's talking about what I guess we would now call or know as like a short-term endorphin hit. Quick-fire pleasure that is unrelated to actual relationship, actual vulnerability, actual intimacy. And even though it's different for each of us, like the, the heart of it is different for each of us, this loss of sensitivity and kind of a draw of sensual pleasure, it rings true for all of us. So Paul continues, but this isn't the way you learned in Christ. This is not how you were taught in accordance with the truth that is Jesus. In fact, remember, you were taught to put off your old self. He's done it. He's taken it. He's saying, come back to Jesus. Live a life worthy of our calling is not about willpower. It's not like trying harder until your face is red and your knuckles are white. I'm just going to try and be better. Verse 23, to be made in, new in the attitudes of your minds. minds. Becoming more like Christ is always something that happens to us. Not something we achieve. It's a work of the spirit. Our role in the process is simply to let him let him in. It's about changing the patterns that have led to self-destruction in the past. And we do that by inviting Jesus into the chaos, not trying on our own to get out of it. Because when we grasp onto who he is and what he's, he's already done, it transforms our mind. So no matter how angry I get, no matter how many times I tell my close friends to get lost, but with stronger language using expletives, I'm very good at using. And no matter how alone I feel, I am no longer who I was at 18. I am 
I am who I am now because of Jesus. I'm a child of the living God, and this is your story too. You are no longer who you were. Finally, unity. I said I'd come back to this. It's when we build one another up by using our gifts to serve one another. And it's when we allow Jesus to remake us as we put on the new spirit-led selves that we actually become more and more and more unified as a body. And that's what we're supposed to be. So this is what Paul is inviting us into. You are gifted individually in a way no one else is. And you are transformed. You are no longer who you used to be. Jesus has done everything necessary. So you can take off your old cloak of shame and you can come to him. So why don't we just believe it this morning? Why don't we just get on with it? Because it's when we do that that we'll start to look a lot more like Jesus as individuals, as a church, as bread. And I just feel like this world and this city needs something very specific. They need more of Jesus. Jesus.